This morning out in the foyer, Mr. Paul Williams, whom I love, one of the most encouraging men in my life, said, you ready to preach this morning? And I said, oh, I think so. And he goes, wait a minute, let me ask you that again. He said, when you were a quarterback and you stepped into the huddle, did you ever say, I think we're going to run this play and I think we're going to score? I said, yeah, but I never called a play like Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to give it my best shot, but with a bit of fear and trepidation. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11 as we continue our study through this incredible book. This is in another one of those interludes. Chapter 6 were the six seal judgments. The sixth seal ended in chapter 6 with a question, in light of the wrath of God which is coming, who can stand? And then we got an interlude, chapter 7, that answered that question. It's those who are rightly related to Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who can stand. Those who've been forgiven, who've been washed, who've been sealed by God and belong to Him. And then chapters 8 and 9, we began to watch the unfolding of the seventh seal, which is the trumpet. And so we saw six trumpets blow. And then we get the interlude of chapters 9 and 10. Or I'm sorry, chapters 10 and 11. A couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 10. And I suggested, though the question was not explicit, that the question was what to do. If indeed the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ is to be marked by the sorts of things described in the seals and described in the trumpets, then what are God's people to do? And I think chapter 10 answered that question essentially, and I wish I could have said it so poetically two weeks ago. I think chapter 10 says, the end is nigh, so prophesy. Ah, pretty good, huh? The end is nigh. We saw that there in chapter 10, verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and things in it, earth, things in it, sea and things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. The end is nigh. And so... John is told to take the book, to consume it, to ingest it, and then down there in verse 11, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Prophesy is not merely, if you will, to speak about things that are going to happen in the future. It is to proclaim and call upon people to respond to what God has already revealed about himself in reality. And so I think chapter 10, along with others, is a call to the people of God during this period of history to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to prophesy about what God has done and what he offers to people. Now chapter 11 continues this interlude, and at the end of it, we will hear the seventh trumpet Sound And so we're in the interlude, and I think maybe this chapter 
answers this question for us, not, not merely what are we to do, but what are we to expect? We're going to have to move fast. I'm going to read the chapter and then preach my message and go eat lunch and take a nap, all right? Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire." When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. You'll remember the first woe and the second woe were back in chapter 9. And now this is the third and final woe. It is the seventh trumpet. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Here we go. First, consider the period In this vision, maybe, John speaks of 42 months there at the end of verse 2 and 1,260 days there in verse 3. Is the book of Revelation and is this particular chapter 
talking about a future seven-year tribulation period and these 42 months, these 1,260 days being the second half of that seven-year tribulation period, often called the Great Tribulation. Could be. Dispensational premillennialists would argue that way. From Daniel chapter 9 and other places, they would understand there to be a literal seven-year tribulation period in the future divided into a first three and a half years and a second three and a half years. And I believe these would be taking place during that second part of the seven-year period. Could be. Or is this about what will take place, what will happen to you and me as we faithfully follow Jesus Christ? That's another way to interpret this passage, at least another way to interpret it. That what John is describing here, as as well as elsewhere in the book of Revelation, is not a literal 42-month period at the very end of time. It's not a literal seven-year tribulation period that we're awaiting in the future. But as I've said before, and I'm going to say again, along with others, I think that what may be being described here, that John is interpreting the 42 months, the 1,260 days, the From the Old Testament, the time, times, and half a times to be referring to the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. You might not agree with me on that one. I'm not so sure I agree with myself on that one at times. I listened to one of my modern-day heroes, Pastor Alistair Begg, this week as he attempted to make sense of the Daniel 9 passage And what he says, I'm going to say, and then move on to my next point. He says this, in what follows, so he's about to give his opinion. In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. I reserve that right too. Tom Schreiner, Revelation isn't describing the story of other believers in another time and place. This is not describing, according to Schreiner, and I think according to me too, it's not describing what's going to be happening in the future with a group of people that will be raptured out and we don't have to, you know, this is just, this is for our amusement or to tickle our fancy about end-time events. This is for us. The experience of believers throughout all history is recorded here. And us believers will face persecution and discrimination during this present age. We'll come back to that. So I'm going with this period of time is not a reference necessarily to a future time but is a reference to the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. Number two, let's remember and devote devote ourselves to proclamation. I'm going to come back to verses one and two, but, but let's remember that God's people are called to proclaim his truth. I think chapter 11 is strengthening what we already found in chapter 10, that the end is nigh, 
And John is told to take the little book, to ingest it, and then to inform the world. And we too are to take the revelation of God, we are to consume it, and then we are to prophesy. We are to proclaim the truth of God to the nations. And here, in verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I think these symbolically represent the witnessing church in this age. Could it be two individuals that are going to, God is going to raise up in the future? Yes. But I think it probably represents the witnessing church in this age. Why two? If you're familiar with the, the language of the Bible, testimony is confirmed by two or more witnesses. And so here symbolically are, are two witnesses and they are, in verse 4, referred to as olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. John seems to have in mind, from Zechariah chapter 4, these olive trees that would produce the oil that would cause the lampstands to shine. And maybe it is that these and, 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 and there's seemingly evidence in Zechariah chapter 4 that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that this oil from the olive trees is maybe referencing the Holy Spirit, empowering his people, his church. Remember, we've already seen lampstands in the book of Revelation, and they represent the churches the people of God, the Holy Spirit empowering his people to shine his truth in the world. They are called witnesses. They are to prophesy. Verse 7, when they have given their testimony. And so these witnesses empowered by the Spirit, shining their light, proclaim God's truth. In Luke chapter 24, it says of Jesus after his resurrection, he opened their minds, his disciples' minds, to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus said, you have witnessed these things. The Spirit of God is going to come and clothe you and empower you, and you are going to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins to all the nations. I think something like that is being described right here in Revelation chapter 11. We too have been clothed by the Spirit of God. We have witnessed what Christ has done, not only in the pages of Scripture, which we believe, but we have witnessed what he has done for us. That he has changed our lives. 
that he has proven himself faithful over and over and over again. And like these witnesses, we too are to shine the light of Christ as we bear testimony and proclaim the good news of the gospel. As we do, to jump ahead, it, the world does not often receive it. Down there in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. These are the witnesses once they've been killed. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And indeed, that's what the witness of the church sometimes does. Jesus said in John chapter 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? When Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. So Herod was having an immoral relationship with the wife of his brother. And John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John would go on, or Herod would go on to behead John the Baptist. John the Baptist was saying to Herod, what you are doing is not right. It is sin. You can't do that. It is evil. And Herod didn't want anything to do with it. The message we sometimes proclaim apparently can torment those who dwell on the earth. Part of our gospel message, as Sonny so reminded us last week, if the good news is to shine in all of its brightness, it has to be laid on the backdrop of the bad news, which is we have all sinned. And so we say to the world and we say to those we might be witnessing to, you have sinned. The wage of sin is death. It's appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. And it's not merely for the big sins. You know, so many of us maybe have been keeping up with that murder trial with Alec Murdoch. He's a thief. Admittedly so. He's a liar, admittedly so, and he's a murderer. He didn't admit to that one, but the jury found him guilty. Friday morning, Scott Ulrich was teaching our Friday morning men's Bible study, and he mentioned a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins, and it was kind of providential because I had already written this into my sermon to quote him not quote him, but to quote his table of contents. It's a book about respectable sins, right? We know the evil sins like Murdoch committed. But, you know, we, we just got our little sins. And Bridges says, oh, no, no, no. He lists ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, 
judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness. One of our missions partners, Dwight Smith, emailed me this week and he said, man, you need to get this book. It's called How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil by Don Carson. In this primal sense, then, evil is evil because it is rebellion against God. Evil is the failure to do what God demands or the performance of what God forbids. Not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength is a great evil, for God has demanded it. Not to love our neighbor as ourself is a great evil for the same reason. To covet someone's house or car or wife is a great evil, for God has forbidden covetousness. To nurture bitterness and self-pity is evil for a similar reason. The dimensions of evil are thus established by the dimensions of God. The ugliness of evil is established by the beauty of God. The filth of evil is established by the purity of God. The selfishness of evil is established by the love of God. All that to say, part of what we proclaim as the witnesses, you have sinned. You have committed evil against the Lord. And the wages of that is Death eternally. It upsets unbelievers' conscience. Maybe it offends their sensibilities. It challenges their assumptions about themselves and about reality. It disturbs their status quo and maybe introduces troubling thoughts about their destiny. And it is a message that demands humility and repentance. And so... In the words of John, it torments. Number three, therefore, we may well expect persecution. Back up in verses one and two, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. We're going to come back to this too, but apparently... When, when John is told to measure the temple of God, again, like with every phrase in Revelation, there is differences of opinion on what that means. Is John envisioning a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem towards the end of the age? Could be. There are others, though, who believe if we follow the theology of the Bible and the theology of tabernacle, temple, throughout the pages of Scripture, that that is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who himself, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, templed among us. God's presence came in the very person of Jesus And he lived and died and rose again. And then by his very spirit, he comes to indwell his temple. Remember when they built the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and in chapter 40, the presence of God came to fill the tabernacle. When when Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 and, and the presence of God came to dwell in the temple. 
The New Testament over and over and over again points to the people of God now as the temple in whom his presence dwells. And it's looking forward even to more in the new heavens and the new earth where the Bible climaxes with, and I will dwell among them. And so, that's a quick explanation. Some believe that this is not referencing a physical temple that will be built, rebuilt in Jerusalem in the latter days. But this is the people of God. And John is to measure them as a symbol of God's protection and ownership of them. He has numbered them earlier in the book. He has sealed them earlier in the book. Here he measures them. Here, 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 and here, or however it may have been. Symbolically communicating your mind and I will protect you, but leave the outer court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, those who are not my people, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. They will tread underfoot. In verse 5, if anyone, these witnesses, wants to harm them, and again, at the end of verse 5, so if anyone wants to harm them. And then the beast, we'll talk more about him when we get to chapter 13, but he will make war with them, overcome them, kill them. This seems to me, along with others, to be talking about the persecution of God's people throughout the ages. Hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification with Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because of your affiliation with me, you may well be hated and excluded and insulted and your name rejected as evil. And we know that it goes beyond that of our Lord. He was not only all of those things, but he was beaten physically and even killed. And so it was for those who followed him, imprisoned, beaten, and some of them lost their lives. The church is scorned, maligned, and dishonored by the world. Again, Carson quickly says a couple of things here. This is why Paul elsewhere, elsewhere warns, that in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of course, Paul has in mind the first century Roman Empire. He had not envisioned modern Western democracies, which to some extent have inherited a Christian worldview. Even so, appearances can be deceiving. That Christian heritage has become so attenuated, has been so thoroughly diluted or compromised, that Christians now face all sorts of subtle pressures in many sectors of business, 
sport, industry, and public service. A police officer's promotion is held up because he will not allow himself to be corrupted. A Jewish family holds a funeral for their son who has become a Christian, meaning they they consider him dead now. Parents stage a wailing scene when their son, a prized surgeon, decides to enter the ministry instead. The media conspired to present most Christians as either irrelevant or as wimps. It is beginning to cost something to be a Christian, and perhaps the church will be purer for it. This book, I think, was written in the late 90s and second edition in the early 2000s, and so we've got another 15 years on this book. That is inevitable, talking about persecution. Decisions are made. He's talking about Christians who stand up now in the midst of persecution. That is inevitable. Decisions are made. The cost is cheerfully borne, and iron is bred into the soul. Moreover, for Christians living in most parts of the world, this would not have to be explained at such length. It would be obvious Imagine explaining these things to Christians in Sudan, China, the northern islands of Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh. On that point, quickly, another one of my favorite guys, one of our mission partners, Tim Kazee, writing about Bangladesh. He and his mission missionary friend were going to what he called the mouths of the Ganges River there in Bangladesh. And they were on one of these planes that lands on the water, right? A welcoming committee of kids came out to greet us, some curious, some mischievous. Emil, that's his missionary friend, had arranged for a boat to take, I'm sorry, Emil was the pilot, missionary aviation fellowship pilot, had arranged for a boat to take Ryan and me to shore where we docked and went on to meet eight believers, men with names like Muhammad and Abdul, who have come to Christ out of Islam. Ryan has been discipling them as they follow Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. After coffee and introductions, Ryan opened the word, followed by a time of prayer and hymns. I particularly enjoyed the singing. One of the men named Jaru served as the cantor, calling the tunes as the other men joined in. In Bengali, they sang, Jesus' name is wonderful. We are worshiping in the name of Jesus. Christ, whose name is above every name, is the one that these men have left all to follow. In many cases, their families treat them as if they are already dead and wish it were so. Yet, even though they are despised and rejected by men, they have joy and grace and courage enough to speak of their Savior. They are now about 200 believers in this region who have come to Christ out of Islam. They are scattered in little house churches as the good news spreads by word of mouth. Even in our little gathering today, there were three generations of Christians. Jaru led Jamal to Christ, then Jamal led Hassan to faith and to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Afterward, Ryan and I sat beneath a mango tree with these three men to hear their stories. Hassan has taken refuge here because if he returns home, he will be killed. While sharing Christ in a house meeting last year, he was betrayed and then dragged out into the town and beaten slapped with sandals and publicly humiliated by a crowd calling for his death. The two other men have suffered similarly in their homes and villages. 
As Jaru said, each believer has his own story, but all must walk through the fire. I hardly knew what to say to my brother, so we prayed and continue to pray. Lord Jesus, these three men are going through the fire. Help them to know that you are the fourth man in the fire with them. Be their shield and companion. May even those who have caused this fire fall down in fear and faith and declare that you alone are God. Dusk was settling over this raw river town. Bells, boat horns, and coughing diesel engines mixed with a call to prayer from a chorus of mosques. We were in the river for only a short time before the seaplane swept in. It was as if we had a front row seat at an air show as Emma landed with a splash and a golden spray of light. As our plane lifted off and leveled out, a red sun sat smoldering in the west. I thought of my suffering brothers left behind and of Jaru's words, all must walk through the fire. Below us, rivers ran like tears down the face of the country, and a certain sadness haunted me as we reached dark Dhaka. So, in this period of time between the first and second coming of Christ, we are to be about proclaiming the good news of the gospel, but it won't always be received as such, and thus we can expect persecution, but we can take courage in God's protection. We already noted measuring the temple of God, the people of God. God owns them. God knows them. God has them. As you and I experience persecution for our faithfulness to Jesus, if now and in the future, it will only go as far as God wants. And most often it is short of death, but it may include death. But let's remind ourselves, at death we are taken immediately into the presence of Jesus and it will include future resurrection and experience of the new heavens and new earth. If I, along with others, are on the right track here in verse 7 and following, when they finish their testimony, the beast that has come up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt. Sodom, right? proverbial for immoral and debased society. Egypt symbolizes enslaving and oppressing of God's people. But this is, in this vision describing Jerusalem where Jesus was what? Crucified and killed. So these who witness of Christ, who proclaim Christ in this vision are killed. But what happens, and what happens to them, the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb, so they will treat them with indignity and with contempt. And they'll rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because they're glad these Christians are dead. But after three and a half days the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. God's people will experience future resurrection. 
They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. If I'm on the right track, that in response to what God is going to do in the vindication of his people, and the chronology of these visions can be, some will be judged. And it may well be that that little phrase at the end of 13 some and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven that some will be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We got to close. Remember the promise. So we talked about the period of time. I think maybe this is talking about what are we to be doing? Proclaiming. What can we expect? Persecution. But take courage because God's going to protect us and raise us even if we die. And then remember the promise. This period of time is going to end with the coming of Jesus Christ. The judgment upon the enemies of God and the vindication of his people forevermore. This is my favorite verse in the whole book. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were. How come he doesn't say, and who is to come? Because here he is coming. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The kingdom of Christ is coming. If you know the vision or the, the story of Daniel 2 and the statue which Nebuchadnezzar built, you know that there's a stone coming that's going to destroy them all and it's going to turn into a mountain of the kingdom of God that will last forevermore. If you know the story of Daniel 7 and the beasts, but then the son of man who's going to Approach the ancient of days, and to him will be a kingdom and given a kingdom, and he will reign forever and forever. There is a period of time throughout history where the kingdoms of the world have their way, but one day this is going to happen. Christ is going to come, and the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Now, we got to go, but I'm going to protect myself just a little bit here. I'm going to quote Bust Fanning, longtime prophet, Dallas Theological Seminary, which I believe would make him a dispensational premillennialist. He interprets this with a much more futuristic seven-year tribulation period to come, future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. These two witnesses are indeed two individuals that God's going to raise up in the future and the like. But then he goes on and says this. It also represents, chapter 11, in an intensified form, the larger conflict that has raged throughout world history since humans fell into sin. 
Since that time, the powers of this world under Satan's instigation have waged war against God and his Messiah and have co-opted the world's fallen inhabitants into that cosmic struggle. Those who are called to stand and bear witness to God's truth in such a world will find miraculous success as well as powerful opposition. When we experience these in our life, and witness for Christ, it should not surprise us since we too fit into that larger story of age-long but perhaps less intensified conflict. But like God's two end-time witnesses, we must accept God's call to reach out to an unwelcoming world with our gospel witness, even if it proves difficult and sometimes costly. We must testify to the truth about God's gracious salvation in Jesus Christ offered even to those who are antagonistic to him. By speaking and living out the truth of God in Christ, we truly exemplify his instructions to love our enemies and to pray for and do good to those who hate us. Instead of withdrawing from the hostile world and leaving it to its deserved judgment, Christians are to bear winsome witness by their conduct and their verbal testimony to the Lamb who by his blood ransomed for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. The stakes are high because God's divine judgment awaits those who continue to refuse God's grace in Christ. And Satan's deceptive and destructive power will come to bear more and more against such testimony. But his defeat is assured. And God is even now building his kingdom among all the nations of the world, despite desperate opposition. So all that to say, if you say this is a little more future, and you may even believe, and and we're going to be gone before any of it happens, which is what Dr. Fanning would say. He would say, but it still has lessons for you and me today. We, too, have to bear witness to Christ. We, too, may get persecuted. But don't worry, because God's got us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you help me and my brothers and sisters here and your people across Katy and around the world Step up and step into what you have called us to. To be witnesses, bearing testimony, prophesying what God has done through Jesus Christ for sinners like us. May we shine the light empowered by your spirit in our world. And Lord, should persecution, hardship come our way because of allegiance to Jesus, help us stand knowing that we belong to you, that you've got us, nothing will happen outside of your control, and even if in your providence we should have to die, you will raise us from the dead, and we will be with you in the kingdom of Christ forevermore. I think Revelation 11 says something like that. So would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.